The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I consistently pick up my Bible and I read, for instance, you could go almost anywhere, Psalm 4. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Or I skip right across the page, Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you blessed the righteous, O Lord, and covered him with favors with the shield. We could go on. I could go to the next psalm, the next one, the next one. It's everywhere. And I consistently open my Bible and I read that. Joy. And I search for it, and it is elusive. But there's some, and there's, there's something in me that is extremely frustrated and saddened and grieved by the fact that I can't find this joy that is right here in the text and promised to me. The psalmist says that he has it, experiences it, that those who take refuge in him will ever sing for joy, and it is not ever my experience. Occasionally it is, but I want more of it. I want it consistently. And you do too. I'm telling your story too. Maybe you don't use my language, but it's in the human heart. God put it in the human heart to seek and to long for joy, or call it happiness, or gladness, or contentment, or peace, or rest, or hope, or all those things together. It's in you. It's The desire is in me. I want it, and I can't consistently find it. Do you know that experience? Do you seek it and chase it and grieve when you miss it? God has put that in us. I think sometimes that my life has been this pursuit. I'm not sure when I first began to connect the pursuit to the, the word joy. But I have lived constantly looking for something for here. I remember being a, a kid and living in a summer in central Illinois where there isn't a whole lot to do in a small town. And in August, a couple weeks into August, there's nothing to do but sit around and sweat. Except for the second weekend of August where we had what we called Old Settlers, our town carnival fair that celebrated the founding of the town. And it was, I'll spare you all the details, it was a celebration for Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night. Carnival rides and cotton candy and and fair, fair booths with live music and food and beer tent for the adults and dancing and, and bingo and parades and all kinds of fabulous stuff. And, and we loved it. And Thursday night and Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday morning always came. And we woke up on Sunday morning 
and it was gone. Where did it go? The Boy Scout troop I was a part of, we always volunteered to clean up the garbage. And we walked those same streets that had been previously blockaded off and filled with exciting rides and the smell of cotton candy and people that we didn't know. And, and here they are, the same old streets again, and all that's left is the garbage to clean up. That always happens, doesn't it? Something thrilling and exciting comes along and then it's gone. Do you know that experience? It's the kind of thing we're going to talk about from Deuteronomy 16 this morning. We're not talking about old settlers, fairs and carnivals and whatnot. But joy and the pursuit of it and the opportunity for it to be yours. So we look this morning at the greatest of the three feasts of Israel, the Feast of Booths. We, over the last month, we've been bouncing in and out of the book of Deuteronomy over the holiday season here. But when we've been in Deuteronomy, we've been working through these three feasts of Israel. We covered first Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. And we hit the Feast of First Fruits last weekend. And each one of these this morning included Feast of Booths. They have this, this connection back to God's great saving work that He's done in bringing them out of Egypt and providing for what they need. And they have this, this foot in the present of looking at the good things that God has given and this eye towards the future of there must still be more. Mustn't there? Each one of the feasts is like that. And, and this morning the Feast of Booths is no different. The thing that it emphasizes this morning is joy. And so, my hope this morning is that there will be something here from the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that will touch your heart and connect you to the person of God for your joy forever, so that something like what the experience of the psalmist is can be yours. Let me read the text. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 to 17. 16, 13 to 17, and then I'll pass back through it to be sure that we understand it before moving to make some observations. And you shall keep the feast of booths seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Deuteronomy 16. The paragraph at the end, verses 16 and 17, are really just a summary tying together the, the section about the three feasts and clarifies there that the males were required to come, but no other class was prohibited, and actually everybody was invited. So you couldn't keep anybody away, but the men had to come, and when they came to these three feasts, they were commanded to bring 
offerings that matched how God had blessed them throughout that year. This is a big week-long feast. So bring for the feast, for yourself and for those others who are coming with you, enough to feed everybody, matching how God has blessed you. Not, don't come empty-handed. That's kind of the summary, but we're going to be focusing this morning in verses 13 to 15. Verse 13 vaguely locates the Feast of Booze on the calendar. It's said to be celebrated after they've gathered in the produce of the threshing floor and the wine press. In other words, this is after a harvest. Not the harvest of grain. In Israel, grains would have been harvested in the, early, in the late spring, early summer, and that's connected to the feast just before this, the Feast of First Fruits. This is after the harvest of other important crops, olives, dates, grapes especially. Other parts of the law then clarify this is this would be on our calendar late September, October. This is the end of the agricultural year, the final feast. So after the harvest, by locating it on the calendar, then obviously it's connected to God's provision for them. His, his harvest provision, giving them what they need for life. But the name connects it to something else, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Other parts of the law make clear that this is connecting them to the time when they lived in booths, tabernacles, in the wilderness wandering. For 40 years after they came out of Egypt, they didn't have houses, they had booths. or Think of like tent structures. So they lived in as they wandered around. And so in this feast, Israel gathers together at Jerusalem and kind of recreates the setting of the wilderness. And even the people who were natives of Jerusalem built booths. They build them on their rooftops or in their courtyards. So it's as if back in the wilderness, all of the nation of Israel lived in a circle in booths around the central booth, the central tabernacle where God dwelt. Well, here now at this feast, they're recreating that. They're all going to be living in tabernacles or booths. And in the center is not a tent anymore, but a temple. Kind of putting themselves back in that setting with God dwelling in their midst. And as verse 14 points out again, everybody's invited. Nobody's to be kept away. The men had to come, but children were to come as full participants. Servants and Levites, those who didn't own any land. And again, note that class of those who are kind of in danger of being marginalized, the widow, orphan, sojourner. They come too, and everybody enjoys the blessing of God. In a seven-day-long, there's that perfect cycle of life, a seven-day-long feast. In joy. Beginning of verse 14 points that out. You shall rejoice in your feast. A dominant and probably the dominant theme of this particular feast. To be sure, whenever they came into the presence of God, they were to rejoice. Chapter 12 makes that clear. You could look up at verse 11 from the previous feast. Again, rejoice. You come into his presence at the feast. But at the end of verse 15, when it closes out this feast, he kind of underlines this theme of joy. They are to come to the place that God chooses. And they will come because He's blessed them and you will be altogether joyful. The closing comment. Here at this feast you will be altogether joyful. Not meaning all of you together, but Altogether, as in completely, if you have the NIV, completely joyful, full joy emphasized. And historically, that's what happened. 
that joy came to be expressed particularly in two main events in this feast. Now, it's not spelled out in the law, and it's never actually clarified. There's some hints at it throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus' day, for several hundred years, they had been practicing these two main events during the Feast of Booths. Both of them reach back into the time when they dwelt in tabernacles, touch on the blessing of God today, and look forward to something else. One at night, and the next one in the day. Remember that in Israel, the night precedes the day. That's how a day is counted, from dark to dark. So, first at night, every night probably, but especially on the last night, had what could best be described as a tremendous party. In the temple courts, they lit, historical accounts tell us, they lit four huge lamps that gave off enough light to illumine the area and they dwelt, everybody gathered together at the temple courts and descriptions from the day describe men of piety and good works dancing through the night holding burning torches in their hands as the Levitical orchestra plays and they sing praises and songs throughout the whole night. This is a huge, long party of praise. And the light, it was said, from that temple, from the the four huge torches and all the other torches that everybody are holding in their hands, cast a glow over the whole city of Jerusalem where everybody's dwelling in their tabernacles. Just like how it had been back in the wilderness. When the pillar of fire dwelt over the tabernacle and cast a glow over all of the people, Chasing away, pressing away the darkness. It was a tremendous, happy, joyous party in the light of God. Which the same historical accounts say was nothing like what happened the next morning. So you get this great big party at night, but the next morning, each morning of the week, and then especially on the final morning, on the last and greatest day of the feast, They carried out what was called the water drawing or the water pouring ceremony. The priests, led by the high priest, would go to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and in a pitcher gather water and in a procession take it back to the temple. And when the procession entered into the temple, it was greeted by the blast of trumpets and they carried the water around the altar several times while the Levitical choir sang out particular psalms of praise. And the people cried out, Thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord three times. And then they poured out the water and wine there at the altar and offered the morning sacrifice. may not sound like much to us, but the people who describe this speak of it as, I mean, one one description says, the person who has never experienced the joy of that celebration has never seen joy in his life. Clearly hyperbolic, but... You get the point. There was tremendous celebration as they stood there and looked back at God. When they dwelt in booze, God provided water in a desert out of a rock twice. Water for life poured out from God. And then they shook in their hands at that time a citrus fruit and branches, produce of what? Water, wine, water, rain provided by God looking forward to a time when He would do that even more 
The Old Testament is replete with images of water poured out, providing life. So they would say, they would recite in, in this festival and other times during this week, passages from, for instance, Isaiah 12, come and draw water from the fountain of salvation. Or Zechariah 13 and 14, passages there that talk about in that day, in the day of Messiah. So we got a foot in the past here where God provided water from a rock, a foot in the present where He's provided water that's produced these crops, and an eye on the future. In that day, in the day of Messiah, there will be a fountain open, says Zechariah 13, and also I'm going to quote 14. Be a fountain opened for the house of David and for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin. There will be a river of living water flowing out from Jerusalem to the nations, to the east and to the west, in the summer and in the winter, and God will be king of all the earth. From this spot, there will be a river of living water to flow. And so they pour it out in hope. For that day, when the water of life runs freely everywhere and the rain of God spreads and people drink and are satisfied. The water pouring festival, which dwarfed in joy the torch lighting party from the night before. That's how they celebrated the Feast of Booths. Rejoicing at the feast. Experiencing a life that was altogether joyful for seven days. So the theme we're, we're drawing out of this feast, and we're going to emphasize this morning, is a the theme of joy. But I, I'm not interested in joy for just seven days. There's certainly symbolism in the seven days pointing to a whole life. But I'm not interested in joy the last seven days or seven hours or seven weeks. Not some great weekend or an awesome vacation. I want joy. That is, Psalm 4, greater than they have when their grain and wine abounds. That will leave me singing for joy forevermore. And this passage says that God is at work to make His people glad. God is at work to make His people glad and then it invites us to come to Him for full joy. Let me say it again. Get right down. My main point this morning, God is at work to make His people glad. So come to him for full joy. I'm going to unpack that in two observations. First one, getting at God's intention in the feast. Here's my first observation. God intends that his blessing lead to the full joy of his people. God intends, he aims at, he aspires to his Blessing leading to the full joy of his people. I, I draw this mostly from verse 15. Tinted at in the start of verse 14, but 15 underlines that the command, you shall keep the feast for seven days at the place where the Lord chooses. Why is that? Because, it says, for the Lord will bless you. So we've got blessing there on the table. 
And, and clearly the blessing in this context, he says, the, bless the work of your hands, the produce. He's blessing the crops. So they have a feast after abundance of crops. It makes perfect sense. But we need to keep thinking through this because the reasoning continues. And it's easiest to see this if you have an ESV or, or an NAS. But if you have the NIV, it's there too. It's in the Bible. The NIV says, and you will be completely joyful. It's an and of sequence, cause. Like if I were to say, I will exercise and get in shape. Those aren't two separate things. The exercising is before and for the purpose of getting in shape. He will bless them and they will be completely joyful, as the ESV says, so that you will be all together joyful. Sequence, blessing, before and for the purpose of all together joyful. So, what kind of God is this? Think about this. What kind of God is this? Is he a God who wants his people to be mildly okay? No. To be pretty decent people? No. Who would be fine if they're excited, but really doesn't care so much either way. That's okay. Whatever, whatever happens to you, that's good. As long as you're obedient. No. Think about it. It's, it's not hard. It's right there. But think it through. What kind of God is this? It is a God who in fact wants His people to be completely joyful. Fully all together, to the nth degree, however you want to put that, completely joyful. It is His aim for you as people. Joy. What kind of God is that? That's a good God. He aspires to your joy. He aims at your joy. He looks upon His own with a large and good heart. And He longs for them, for us, for you if you belong to Him by faith in Christ. He longs for you to experience a life that is full of joy. Not, and I, to be clear, I'm not talking about something that is just kind of a happy, light, positive inclination at this moment, but that may pass away. And the clouds come. He aims for joy in you. Something that has some depth to it. Some strength. Some ability to lift up and to sustain your soul. To carry it amidst situations that are hard. It's a soul that's filled with delight and hopefulness and, and general positive inclination and outlook. Something that's not easily chased away. But as a clear comprehension of the beauty of God that is laid out before it and has acted to become its ally. You follow what I said there? A soul that sees the beauty of this God and realizes that God has acted to become mine. 
and is so enthralled with that that it's captured with joy. The type of, of feeling or the type of experience in here that is inclined to see negative circumstances that will come in life, certainly, and to take those negative circumstances and subject them to this reality of a glorious God who is your ally, rather than the other way around. Do you follow what I said there? It is the kind of heart attitude that sees the pain in life, the sorrow-inducing realities of life, takes them and is able to rejoice always, even while sorrowing. Paul's description of the Christian in 2 Corinthians. People to sorrow while ever rejoicing because you take that and subject it to the glory of God who is for you. It's joy. He wants that in fullness for His people. After all, that's what He's like. We have a happy God. Don't get that confused. We, we read, we're reading through the Old Testament and we're, we're seeing situations like Mount Horeb. Fire and thunder. Smoke on the mountain. That's an angry God, isn't it? No. He is indeed grieved over sin, and He is indeed serious about holiness. But He is ultimately full of delight. He is infinitely happy. He is well aware that He will accomplish all of His will and all of His purpose. His goals stand. They come to pass. The new heaven and the new earth will for certain be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He is well aware of that. He is not threatened or concerned or bothered by anything that happens. He knows that all is in His hand. And of all beings, human and angelic, He is infinitely more acquainted with His own beauty, enthralled by it, and delighted in Himself. He is His own supreme thought. And that's a good thought. And so He is glad. Get this about God. God has a mind that is set on glorious and awesome and beautiful things constantly. Sure, He looks at the world and is grieved by it. But He is able to sorrow while ever rejoicing. He rejoices in His own whom He has redeemed. He rejoices in the Gospel that has done it all by His glorious power and will and wisdom. He rejoices in His Son who has won a people for Himself to His his endless praise. He is a happy and joyful God. And He means to give that life away to His people. How, How great of an incongruity it is if a God who is happy and joyful and delighted lives with a people who is miserable. It doesn't fit. It speaks a lie. And so he says, I aim for you to be altogether joyful like I am. Praise God for that. What a God he is. 
And yet I read that, and I often feel like I'm in a shell game. Okay, it's out there somewhere, I get. But which one? That Nope, wasn't there. I can't find it. But I'm looking. The problem is I'm looking often in the wrong places. What about you? Where do you look for joy? Here's a God who made you with, with a spot in you that says, I want joy. He made you that way because He aims to, to fill it. But the tragedy is that we often... Even after we become Christians, we often are looking for that somewhere else. Where do you seek joy or or happiness or contentment or pleasure, whatever your word is? We often look for them in relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends. So walk through your life here with me. I'm going to start in a place and move. You may not be able to connect with all the places, but... Some of them you probably can. You start off thinking, aspiring to, hoping for that special someone. I suppose you start off before that, hoping for Christmas to come. But after that, you get a little older and you realize you want that special someone and you're looking for that boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. And suppose that that person comes. And it's thrilling for a while. You're on cloud nine. And maybe even it leads to an engagement. And you, oh, the, the day of marriage. Oh, you're waiting for that. And it's all you hoped it would be. But it ends. It ends. The wedding celebration itself ends. The reception ends. The honeymoon ends. And let's suppose you don't settle into a bad marriage. You settle into a perfectly content marriage. It's a good one. At some point there, you begin to realize this isn't it. Some of you are in marriages uh, several steps below that, and you are very clear on that, that this isn't it. But even those of us in the best of all possible marriages, you know this isn't it. This person isn't your life. This person can't be everything, and so you foster other things. You develop other friendships that are good and healthy. You, you get a hobby. You, you go to work. You have children. And you begin to aspire to the next promotion. That'll be it. The next house you can buy with the income. That'll be it. When the kids graduate from, or from, or from, when they get married. Oh, that'll be awesome. And it is for a day. And then that passes too. You know it does. If you're looking under that shell, it's not there either. Maybe the grandkids will do it. Retirement, that will be awesome. It isn't. It isn't. I'm not retired, but I know that. And some of you who are retired know that. It can be fine and good, and all those things are fine and good. Grandchildren are fine and good. Retirement's fine and good. We could add in, couldn't we, a whole list of stuff that's not fine and good? That people are equally deceived into thinking will satisfy? Many people look under all kinds of vices or all kinds of good things to tremendously negative degrees. The joy's not found there either. 
He made you saying, I want joy. And the problem of the human condition is we say, yes, and I'm going to go find it where it isn't to be found. We may have a temporary moment of a great three-day party, but at the end, there's just the garbage left to pick up and reality returns. The morning after always comes. The special moment passes. The relationship ends. The thrill fades. The cool toy breaks. Our bodies wear out and we die. That's the truth. Many of our houses are full of awesome Christmas gifts that have been forgotten. Doesn't last. Why do we consistently seek to build houses of joy on foundations of shifting sand? That an enterprise that's doomed from the start. Because often we have not fully taken in Jesus' offer of something better. I will bless them so that they will be altogether joyful. And we're chasing after the altogether joyful and we look over, look past the I will bless them part. We, we get too confused that the I will bless them is the stuff. It's not. It's something else. He offers us a new and better blessing. He intends to bless in order to create this joy. And He offered us one day at the Feast of Booths a new and better blessing. At the very end of the feast with the music already beginning to fade, lamps from the previous night's party extinguished, The water of joy poured out and seeping into the ground and just a wet spot left to mark where it had been. At that moment, on that day, Jesus stood and cried out in a loud voice, this does not have to end. It can go on forever for you. In your heart, come to me. That takes us to our second observation. I'm going to begin to get at the second observation through Deuteronomy 16, but we have to go to that scene with Jesus in John chapter 7 and 8 if we're going to fully understand what the Feast of Booths is getting at and the theme of joy that it carries. So let me take the observation, language of Deuteronomy, and we'll start there, but then we're going to move to John. Here's the second point. We must come into God's presence to experience His full joy. The full joy He intends for us is found in His presence finally and fully. And we must come there and gloriously we can come there. Into communion with Him. The great blessing that leads to our joy. God's after joy. Saw that in 1415. Keep thinking about this. Does He foster this joy in His people simply by giving them 
a great crop for the year. Is that all? There is a great crop. There's a, there's a, a, a bountiful grape harvest, if that's what I grow, or maybe it's dates or almonds, or I, I grow something and I look out in my field and wow, the branches are about to break with all that's loaded on them. But it's not over. Because I am to gather that together and go somewhere with it. For seven days, I am to go into the presence of God at the place where He chooses to make His name dwell. And there, with the people of God, we rejoice. And there we know all together joyful living. In His presence, with the people of God, within our hands, the evidence of His character. In His presence. It doesn't stop. He doesn't say you get altogether joyful at home on the farm. Here in my presence, gathered around me, tabernacled with me. Isaiah 12, I mentioned it before, says, Behold, and this was a passage read at the Feast of Booths, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst... Why do you shout and sing for joy? For great in your midst, present among you, is the Holy One of Israel. The shouting and the singing, the drawing out of the, the water of salvation, it's in His presence where that happens. So He draws them together to take their eyes off of olives. To take their eyes off of grapes and off of full bellies and full wallets that a crop will produce. And to point their eyes onto Him, the One who gave it. Which is what the ceremonies are attempting to do. To point their eyes onto the One who gave the water that gave the crops. To point the ones, their eyes onto the One who is the lamp who will light their way and chase away the darkness. Defend and protect them. Psalm 16 says, In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you've heard anything from me, you've probably heard that psalm because I quote it frequently. It is clear, is it not? In His presence there is fullness of joy. That's what the Feast of Booths is about and it creates the perfect context for Jesus' declaration of John 7 and also John 8. Present at the Feast of Booths, John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Remember the context of the, the morning water drawing. Ceremony's over. Jesus stands and cries out in the words of Isaiah 55, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water flowing out of your heart. 
to cleanse you and fill you and through you flowing out of you to cleanse and to fill the nations. This joyous drawing of water from the wells of salvation, he's saying it doesn't have to end. It's poured out here. It doesn't have to end. This is looking forward to the day when the river flows from this spot to the nations. It's a metaphor. It's not going to be a river flowing out of that spot. It's a metaphor. From the place where God dwells, from His very presence, there will be a river of life. That day has come. Come to me and you'll experience that inside of you forever. More joy than they have when just they have more wine and grain. Real, full joy in your heart, flowing out of you. And John 8 in the same vein picks up on the imagery of the torchlit nighttime party and says, I am the light of the world. The torches are out. Tonight's going to be dark. Come to me, follow me, and you'll have light for life. There's a lot there. There's a lot of imagery there, and I'm not about to preach a sermon on John 7 and 8. Done that already. You can check that online if you need to. But there's a lot of symbolism here that I'm not going to unpack all of this morning. But follow what he's saying. He's capitalizing on the Feast of Booths and its theme of joy expressed in the water especially and in the, the light. And he's saying, those things are me. That's, this is where you find them. Jesus is standing there saying, you've been in the shell game. I'm going to say it's this one right here. Pick this one up. That's where it is. A river of water bringing life to your heart. And who is that? It's the Holy Spirit. So that we don't miss it, John tells us clearly. By this he meant the Holy Spirit of God. who was yet to be poured out, that would come at the time of the second feast, Pentecost. It's going to be poured out. Water poured out. A river. You see, all the the metaphors are kind of crashing together here. John clarifies, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. The presence of God living in your heart. God the Holy Spirit is the third person of the one triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, three persons. And God the Spirit comes to live inside of every person who trusts Christ. And Jesus says, you come to me and you trust me, he will come and live in you. And that is the river of life, joy flowing out of you forever. You get that if you... Come to me. Whoever believes in me will have this experience. Intellectually believe, trust. Lay down your heart at his feet. Trust him. And a river will sprout up in your heart and water you and everything will grow. Life will grow in you and it will flow out of you and life will grow in the places and in the people that you touch. Which is not just information. It is a call. 
come to me, he says. Jesus does not stand up and cry out with a loud voice, just so you know. It's here's the truth, come and drink. So the obvious call to, to every single one of us here is come. And I don't know if that means for you, come for the very first time or come again. I, I don't know. I don't know you. There's a lot of you I know, but I don't know all of you and everything about all of you. But one way or another, come. Because you have to? Well, yeah. This is an offer you can't refuse. You have to. But think of it another way. Why don't you want to? For the fullness of joy, why don't you want to? And if you, if you sit here this morning, not a Christian, not someone who's trusted Christ, ask yourself, why don't I want to? And right at that moment, you're putting your finger on something deadly serious about your heart. Irrationally, you're refusing this. Sin has such a hold on your heart that you're rejecting the only hope of joy. Your life has proven it's not found anywhere else. Here it is, under this shell only, come and you will find a river of life. And for some reason you say no, irrationally. Sin has that kind of a hold on your heart. Cry out to God for mercy to break it. Come, trust Christ. This is what the cross is about. Removing the barrier that keeps people away from God. Their sin barrier that keeps them away from a holy God and away from His presence and away from the river of life and away from joy. The cross says, I will come. Christ on the cross says, I will come. I will pay for that sin myself and remove the barrier. So the communication can happen. Cry out for mercy to see that and believe it. And come to Him. Most of us here have come, and the call still to you is, come. It's always the same. Come. Surely, surely it grieves God when we live with a well within us, capped over, us in tin cup wandering around all the other faucets in the city, hoping for something to come out. Surely that grieves him. Open the well, come and drink. Quench your thirst. Follow, which means obey. And he'll be light shining over your life. This is, I mean, it may be, Christian brother, sister, it may, it may be that there's some significant turning point that you have to to look at and embrace today. But it may not be. It may be that you just have to do it again. I find I have to come very regularly. Many, many times a day. I have to come and say, have me. Will you wash over me? Will you give me to drink for my soul? Today, right now, God, help me.
And as you say that, maybe you need to say that you know once in, in some sort of a, of a defining moment right now, Christian, but maybe you need to say that again because it's worn off since this morning. You've taken control of your life again, maybe. But as you say that, realize that the, the water that rushes in, to use all these metaphors, the, the washing that happens, the joy that happens, it is not like kind of an endorphin rush. It's not like caffeine, where if you drink a quadruple shot Americano and then just forget about it and go about your business, you will get jittery. You don't have to try. Unless you drink that all the time, then maybe you have a tolerance built up. But you will probably start to shake without trying. It will affect you. You can just forget about it and it will affect you. That's not the case here with the Holy Spirit. Because what he does when he, when he grows joy in your heart is not just a, a, a presto sort of, a make him happy sort of thing. He uses means. What he does is he works in our inner beings, in our minds, hearts, to give us the mind of Christ. A lot can be said about this, but I'm, I'm going to be brief here. To give us the mind of Christ. And what that does, think back to why God is so happy. Because God knows the truth and dwells on it regularly. What the Holy Spirit does is brings the truth to our minds and causes us to dwell on it regularly. And the result naturally has to be joy. Where do you find the truth? Here. The Spirit takes the Word and works it into you. And opens your eyes to it so that you believe it. That's how he produces joy in a Christian. It's not an automatic, I forget about it sort of thing and it happens. He takes the truth and opens your eyes to it. So we feed him while yielding to him. God, open my eyes to this. Conform me to this truth. Show me. We put this in, praying for God the Holy Spirit to knead it into our hearts and, and open our eyes to it. That's how He produces joy. We need Him in control of our lives with the Spirit as a weapon in His hand, with, with the Word as a weapon in the Spirit's hand. We must come into God's presence to experience His full joy. You come humbly, begging, Scripture in hand, God, open my eyes, renew my mind, so that I will be changed and know joy. God aims for joy in His people. He's working to make you glad. So come to Him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for being the kind of God who wants a people filled with joy. There is nothing that would obligate that to be the case. But you are a joyful God and you want a people like that. And I praise you for that. I thank you. And I pray then, Lord, that you will do your work here in each individual in this room. Some who don't know you, Lord, open their eyes. 
deliver them from misery to great eternal gladness. And for those of us here, Lord, my brothers and sisters who do know you, and I pray this especially for myself, will you give us a greater taste of the psalmist experience who knows a joy that is far surpassing the joy of those who have great circumstances, who knows what it's like to sing forever with joy and to exult in your name, Pray, give us that experience, Father. Help my brothers and my sisters here to taste you, that kind of a God, to know the truth about you and to be shaped by it so as to be happy. I pray this in Christ's name, who would be marvelously glorified if we lived like this. Do it for his sake, I pray, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.